You're listening to Fake Believe, the podcast that gets some things right about conspiracies, cults, and cryptids. Hi, welcome to Fake Believe. I'm Stacy, and I've never met a potato I didn't like, but I haven't been formally introduced to that many potatoes. <laughs> and, and I'm Rachel, and it's an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> so, okay, wait, potatoes. One, I also love potatoes, and I think about this like way more often than you would think. But my friend one time said, wow, that's the cutest potato I've seen in a while. Oh. <laughs> like, I'm just like, he's not saying like that's the cu- cutest potato I've ever seen, but he's like, that's the cutest potato I've seen in a while. Like, <laughs> So like often he, he notices <laughs> how cute potatoes are <laughs> right but then <laughs> that's so wholesome <laughs> yeah it's cute. we need it's more cute. of that in our lives <laughs> we do yeah especially because of today's topic yeah we're talking about something really wholesome today uh, i spent all week researching hansen so i'm like all into like the mbop bop bop boo rachel yeah rachel yeah um we're not we're not talking about the hansen family <laughs> what it's not no, no, Rachel, no. Wait, wait, what are We're we talking, talking about? talking about the Manson family. Oh, oh, Stacey, that's, that's not the same thing at all. <gasps> no. Mbop, <laughs> oh, indeed. <laughs> it's Mbop in a minor key. <laughs> oh, yikes, I'm pulling at my collar. Oh. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, we do wish that we had more wholesome content, but nope, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the best thing to do is to just get into it. Let's get over it. Get over. Get this over with. Jesus Christ. <laughs> We're podcasters. <laughs> Everything you're about to hear is unsettling and full of contradictions. A movement calling for peace and love coinciding with violence and anger. A quest for fame resulting in infamy. A family turned into a cult. A murderer who never killed anyone. Today, we will be discussing Charles Manson and his cult, the Manson Family. The leader of the Manson family, Charles Manson, was a racist, sexist, arrogant, narcissistic dick with a god complex. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm skipping the early childhood aspect of his life because I don't want to paint Manson in any kind of sympathetic light. Yes, he had an awful childhood, but that is no excuse for what's to come. Right. Lots of people have had awful childhoods, mm-hmm. sadly. And not all of them end up leading cults or ordering murders or hurting people. Right. <laughs> Dancing himself a musician, this shit stain tried and failed to pursue a career as a rock star. Manson had the bright and totally original idea to move to California to become famous after being released from prison for the second time. Constantly spewing bullshit, Manson dubbed himself a guru and would preach to anyone who would listen. His dogma was a mixture of Christianity, Satanism, Scientology, and the teachings of a group called Process Church of Final Judgment. Hmm. That that particular church was um, pretty heavy-handed with some of the things that they would say and preach. 
somewhat of like a fire and brimstone, somewhat of like a Satanist kind of feel, but not like how we think of Satanists today, <laughs> Satanism and whatnot. More occultist, I guess, in the Satanic panic type of mm. way. <laughs> so, and this is in the 60s. Yeah, around mm-hmm. around the 60s okay. when he's starting to say all these things. <laughs> okay. So clearly he's a deranged moron who cherry picks his ideology for attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he can't just pick one. And <laughs> unfortunately, this was during the hippie era where counterculture was running rampant throughout the young, impressionable minds. Despite his lack of originality and depth, Manson was considered pretty charismatic. He would often insinuate that he was Jesus Christ because his last name was Man's Son. Son of Man. (laughs) (sighs) Preying on young women, Manson began to grow his cult, or, as he put it, his family. (sighs) Gross, I hate when people do that. Call their cults their family. Yeah. Especially like whenever you're in a, uh, like in a work setting, they're like, we're a family here. Are we? Are we a family? Because uh, I've never had a family treat me this way before. <laughs> Manson moved in with a woman named Mary Brunner, whom he eventually impregnated. How? With sex. Oh. <laughs> he ejaculated in her, and uh, it was her time to be fertile, and then the oh. egg was fertilized, <laughs> and then it grew, and then that's how it happened. Did you ever see yeah. the movie Look Who's Talking? <laughs> no, but I know what it's about, and that's why I won't see it. <laughs> <laughs> so in the opening credits of Look Who's Talking, you see a sperm fertilizing an egg. My friend in the sixth grade told me that her little sister thought that 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 you got pregnant by kissing and in that movie the sperm was your spit. So oh. and your spit went and found the egg yeah. and fertilized that. So I was just wondering if that's what Manson did with Mary Brenner. No, sex education in the United States <laughs> does not seem to be that great. <laughs> Uh, just Google it. (laughs) Brenner allowed more and more women to move into her house at the behest of Manson. All in all, there were about 18 more followers, mostly women, who were living with Manson and Brenner. At some point, a handful of followers joined Manson on his refurbished school bus. They went around the country, and during their roaming, the Manson family rubbed elbows with some well-known musicians. So uh, I'm just going to take a break here really quick mm-hmm. to kind of speak to the audience. There's a whole lot of cultural significance that comes with Charles Manson, mostly for the worst. But there is a notion of how he fit in with the times and with the culture and kind of an explanation as to what was happening, how people were feeling, how people were responding to things. This this was a this was a unique time in history, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. And we are unable to cover all of it because <laughs> when you really get down to it, there there's a lot of working and moving parts to just this one story. So if it seems like we're glossing over some things, we kind of are, but that's because we are trying to show on a smaller scale what this 
means to people and what it did at that time. So, like, I wasn't around at that time, so the cultural significance of it is a bit lost on me. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do also know that after all of the things happened, (laughs) there was even more cultural significance that went on around it. So um, bear that in mind. There were so many things uh, that were going on and that had some crazy stories here. Um, I'd encourage you to um, listen to the podcast that I uh, listened to for some research on this, which is You Must Remember or you must remember Manson. So just to kind of horn in a little bit there too, just just like think the this was the 60s. So this was, you know, the hippies, the free love movement. It was also the civil rights movement. Um, Dr. King was assassinated in the 60s. There was also a lot of uh, Vietnam War protests and the student protest movements were happening. So it was uh, a very big shift in the culture. And I think, in my opinion, Manson would not have been um, successful in uh, in what he was trying to do had he been doing it in any other time period. Exactly. The music scene of the 60s was also greatly impacted by all of the civil unrest and everything that was happening culturally at that time. So mm-hmm. when, when we say culture, like it really did impact all aspects of it. So since <laughs> Charles Manson thought that uh, he was cut out to be a musician, there's obviously a lot of backstory that goes into the music scene. So we're going to try our best to um, illustrate that in whatever way that we can. But again, there's a lot that goes on. So <laughs> that's a little sidebar for that. Let's continue. Okay. <laughs> Manson was convinced that he was going to make his big break by talking to people like Dennis Wilson. For those of you that don't know, he was one of the singers of the Beach Boys. (laughs) But he didn't realize that some people actually didn't find him as endearing as he thought. I've I've had that realization (laughs) before myself. Darn it, I have something in common with Charles Manson. That's it. Damn it. (laughs) It's okay. I'm kind of the opposite. I just automatically think that people don't find me as endearing (laughs) as I think I am, which I don't think I'm that endearing most of the time. It's called anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for medication. His music career never took off, and he was failing in many other aspects of his life. After being evicted... The Manson family moved their way to an old location for movie sets, Spawn Ranch. Somehow, the 80-year-old owner of the ranch, George Spawn, was convinced to let the group stay. How? Oh, well, maybe it was because the women would do chores around the property. Or maybe it was because Manson would instruct the women to have sex with the old pervert. Mm -hmm. You know... Kind of, kind of both. Uh-huh. <laughs> little column A, little column B. Right. If I'm being realistic. <laughs> so, did Manson um, help with the chores, and did Manson have sex with George Spawn? Absolutely not. God. Only the women did the chores, and only the women would have sex with whoever they were instructed to have sex with. Sometimes they were instructed to have sex with Manson himself. Mm-hmm. It's all good fun, you know? Mm-hmm. Free love. Yeah, free love, except that you have no freedom in who you get to make love to. Mm-hmm. 
The group squatted on the property, dumpster diving for food, and living as free spirits, all while listening to the teachings of their dumbass leader. (laughs) So you can see why it was kind of um, endearing or alluring to some young people. Like, oh, I just get, like, I don't have to have a job and work for the man. All I have to do is do some chores around the house, like Mm -hmm. around this ranch. It's so pretty. It's so cool. Movie stars used to hang out here. And... Oh, wow. I, I get to just be a free spirit. But then you start realizing that, like, you have to dumpster dive for food and you have to be a part of this awful cult. And, you know. Well, and so many of them were escaping from terrible other situations. And so then, you know, it was like um, they had found a family not just with Manson, but with the other women. They call them girls. You know, I have a yeah, hard time with that, girls. but um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but with the other girls, like they did feel this sense of family, and so um, for a lot of them, it was at least perceived as an upgrade, right? And that actually leads me to my next points mm-hmm. in my next section, which is talking a little bit about some of the family members. Okay, so with every dumbass leader, there must be some followers. <laughs> <laughs> Let's meet some of the Manson family members. And so really quick, again, before I get into this, kind of a bit of a trigger warning. For a lot of these things, I do kind of gloss over it to keep this lighter and a little bit nicer. But there are trigger warnings for things like sexual assault, um, being neglected by family. And then obviously later on, we are going to talk about violent murders. So um Just letting everybody know, right here at this point, it's not a very fun episode if you're not, if you, if you do have, um, those kinds of triggers. So please keep that in mind as we move forward. Thank you. So first up, we've got Susan Atkins. Mm -hmm. Manson began calling her Sadie Mae Glutz when she joined the family. During her time on the ranch, Atkins became pregnant and eventually gave birth to a boy whom Manson named Zizozos Zadfrak Glutz. Rolls off the tongue. Does. Sure does. What a, what a beautiful name for your baby boy. <laughs> Adkins was particularly attractive, so people who would often call her Sexy Sadie. And remember that for later. Okay. Thanks, Rachel. You're welcome. <laughs> Next, we have Lynette Squeaky from... Fromm was a college dropout whose parents had kicked her out of the house. Alone and vulnerable at the age of 19, Fromm was sitting on the curb when a certain bus pulled up to her. Out walked Manson, who asked, your parents threw you out, didn't they? Perceiving this as a psychic ability, Fromm followed Manson. While at the ranch, (laughs) she was given the nickname Squeaky by the perverted Spawn because she was known to squeak when he would pinch her thigh. I know, because he was in his 80s, right? Oh, yeah. And she was 18. She was, I think, 19. She was 19. Yeah. It's still not great. Yeah. Still very gross. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, you know, sometimes the squeak isn't necessarily a good thing. Right. There's so many awful people in this. <laughs> <laughs> the, the majority in the Manson story are awful people. Yeah. Sorry to say it, guys. <laughs> but I will go on record saying that the Manson family are not good people. Yeah. You can quote me. <laughs> All right. Next, we have Leslie Van Houten. 
Van Houten was a teenage runaway whose mother forced her to have an abortion when Van Houten was just 17 years old. These events in her life resulted in her fleeing from her circumstances to join a hippie commune. This is where she met Manson and became a frequent user of psychedelic drugs. Next, we have Patricia Krenwinkel, mm-hmm. as fun as that is to say. <laughs> Still probably going to start through it. <laughs> um, Krenwinkel grew up being bullied for being overweight, which made her very insecure. After meeting Manson, the two developed a sexual relationship and she became part of the family. Mm-hmm. So if you guys haven't already caught on on some of the um, themes here, a lot of outcasts are the ones that are joining, especially in in regards to the women, are the ones that are joining the family. Mm-hmm. So, again, always always try and keep that in mind um, when you talk about um, cult Almost members. exclusively outcasts, at least the ones who stuck around. There were some, there were a couple, you know, who came from wealthy families. There were even a couple like Spawn, not Spawn Ranch, but S-P-A-W-N of celebrities who were kind of like in and out. That's true. Most of those, though, um, were men, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And the men were obviously treated way better than Mm -hmm. the women in -hmm. this. Um, And they were the ones that got to have sex with whoever they wanted to. And they had way more fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Next, we have Charles Tex Watson. Serendipitously, Watson and Manson met after giving Dennis Wilson a ride home since his car was wrecked. (laughs) So Dennis Wilson pops up a lot in this. And I'm sorry I didn't go into too much detail about who he is, but he mostly has to do with the background of it. But I guess uh, Manson tried to be buddy-buddy with Dennis Wilson, and it didn't always work, but they did end up... (laughs) Hanging out with they each lived. Other. The family so. lived in Dennis Wilson's house for several months. Yeah, I was gonna say, but <laughs> still, like there were some accounts where he was like, "Yeah, we were friends." Like he really like, tried to distance. <laughs> well, and then he much, ghosted like. them. Basically, he um his lease went up in his house, and he just left. And then and yeah. the landlord had to take care of the Manson, family. which was the eviction at yeah. the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> So that's that. That's where they got evicted from <laughs> Dennis Wilson's house. So, uh, but uh, because uh, this guy Tex um, happened to see Dennis Wilson after uh, his car got wrecked, he's like, "Oh, let me give you a ride home." And then he got there and he met Manson. <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> Watson was a college dropout who, by all accounts, had a fairly privileged life. After joining Manson at the ranch, Spawn had given him the nickname Tex because of his thick Texan accent. See, Charlie Manson is so original, like at everything, you know? Well, Spawn's the one that gave him the nickname. Oh, shit. (laughs) Spawn is also super original. Yeah, I mean, he's the nickname guy with squeaky and Uh, Tex. (laughs) Next, there's Bobby Beausoleil, which means like pretty son. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Beautiful son. As in Son in the Sky. So a delinquent in his childhood, Boussoulet wanted to pursue a career in music. Where have we heard that before? Mm. <laughs> he ran in the same crowds as Manson, so the two became close. Next is Stephen Clem Grogan, a petty criminal and a college dropout who had done odd jobs for Spawn Ranch well before the Manson family had settled there. So he had met up with them at some point after that. Next is Bruce Davis. Considered to be Manson's right hand, Davis was a college dropout who was loyal to the family. So again, with the men, you can hear a lot of 
college dropout yeah <laughs> kind of thing um kind of sounds like a lot of them maybe went to college to avoid the draft and then <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah could be i mean that's speculation on my part so sure, sure, sure. don't take that for <laughs> at face value and then the final manson family member i'm going to mention is linda kasabian a two-time pregnant divorcee, Kasavian found herself at the ranch and became very interested in Manson and his teachings. So the family mostly lived on the ranch, and again, they were able to do so because the women did the chores around the property. Manson mostly sat around, getting high, preaching his philosophies, and flaunting his power to other men. All the while, he was still trying to hold on to his dream of becoming a rock star. <laughs> And now, hold on to your hats, people. <laughs> We're getting into it. <laughs> when Manson first heard the Beatles' White Album, he liked it quite a bit. So, uh, quick sidebar here, I'm a Beatles fan. Mm -hmm. I got a couple tattoos that represent Beatles. Um, they're very impactful um, in my family. I grew up loving them because my family did. Uh, I know a lot of people my age are over the Beatles, think that they're overrated. That's fine. Um, I do like them. But I have never thought that they were directly trying to speak to me. <laughs> <laughs> not even during Rocky Raccoon? Especially not during Rocky Raccoon. <laughs> Completely and grossly misinterpreting the songs... Manson was convinced that the Beatles were speaking to him directly, urging him to release a response album. Because, you know, <laughs> the Beatles totally knew who he was and wanted him specifically to release a response album to one of the most famous bands at the time. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear my eyes rolling. I don't know if the microphone is picking that up. But trust <laughs> They're rolling. <laughs> According to Manson, the Fab Four were alluding to an upcoming race war in which black people were going to overthrow the white people, hence the name The White Album. I feel like, wouldn't you call it The Black Album if it were about that? Well, no, because it's white people that are sending a message to other white people. Oh, so oh I see. They're sending oh, the message okay. to Manson to prepare for this and to, to get all that ready so that the white people can be ready when this happens. <laughs> <laughs> Manson's top five songs from that album are Revolution Number 1, Revolution Number 9, Blackbird, Piggies, and, of course, Helter Skelter. Mm -hmm. So it's really unfortunate because Blackbird was actually like a sincere attempt by Paul McCartney to empathize with black people at the time mm -hmm. um, and their civil rights movement, what's, what's going on with them and trying to give them a voice in whatever right. way he can. However you feel about that is however you feel about that. But that was the intention. And then Manson took it the complete opposite way to mean more of a that they need to stop. I don't know. It's <laughs> And it's so awkward and uncomfortable mm -hmm. having to talk about his logic and his reasoning um, because there is no logic to it. He's just crazy. But we kind of have to get through that part so that people understand kind of where everything was coming from. Right. 
using his twisted logic, Manson said that Helter Skelter, a song originally inspired by a roller coaster, was actually predicting the chaos of the upcoming revolution. <sighs> Smart guy, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. And not Charles Manson. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Of course, this is a preposterous theory made up by a lunatic. However, his followers were easily convinced due to the brainwashing and the inclusion of a song called Sexy Sadie. <sighs> and as we recall from earlier, Susan Atkins was dubbed Sexy Sadie yeah. by Manson. The Beatles had to know. This was released. Yeah. And there's yeah. no such thing as coincidence. And correlation is always <laughs> causation. That's it. That's what we say here. <laughs> what should have been written off as a coincidence ended up being a catalyst for the cult's paranoia and delusions. So get ready, everybody. We're getting to the bad stuff. <laughs> Manson told the group that the black people of the revolution might need some help getting started on this race war. He obviously didn't think that highly of black people. To start things off, Tex created a scheme to rob a man named Bernard Crow, whom he thought was a Black Panther. The plan was to get Tex's ex, which that's really fun to say, <laughs> to ask Crow for $2,500 to borrow so they could buy 25 kilos of marijuana and skim some off the top for extra profit. When it became clear that they were lying and not going to give him his money, Crow showed up at the ranch threatening to wipe everyone at the ranch out. 25 kilos of weed is so much weed. <laughs> like <laughs> an exuberant amount. It's, but I mean, again, they weren't actually ever planning on like doing anything with this. Like they were just gonna Yeah. Can you imagine what it would smell like? Like there's no I mean Oh my god, it'd be it, awful. <laughs> it'd be delicious. Weed smells so bad. <laughs> Just skunks everywhere. Ew. <laughs> Gosh, I hope it's vacuum sealed. <laughs> Do you imagine trying to vacuum seal a bag of weed? Oh, like, no. Oh, no. It's, all going, it's all going into the vacuum. Shoot. I did not think this through. Why did I have to smoke before I did this? I am a fool. <laughs> so soon after the threat, uh, Manson and some of his family went out looking for Crow, and Manson ended up shooting him and stealing his leather jacket, believing Crow was dead. Little did he know, Crow did not actually die at the time, and he later testified at Manson's trial. So, that's kind of nice, you know? Yeah. Like, he thought he killed somebody, and it's like, yeah, you even fucked that up? Yeah, idiot. <laughs> you had a gun, and you shot an, shot an unarmed man, and... You still didn't kill him. Like, you're a failure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything you do. Mm -hmm. But we're glad that Crow survived because yes. um, he did not deserve to be a casualty of Manson. Even if he was dealing marijuana, that has nothing to do with anything. I know lots of people who dealt marijuana. And I can't think of a single one who deserves to be killed, so... Exactly. <laughs> We're getting on a lot of political tangents here. Wait, marijuana so. is legal now everywhere, right? No, I don't think it's legal here. No. I Well, <laughs> recreational, it's not legal everywhere. Yeah, I don't think it is here in Texas. I moved from somewhere where it was legal. We'll just assume that that's what I was talking about. I don't know what we're going. Just talk about Manson. He's way worse. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
Um, the next attempt to push Helter Skelter came in the form of the murder of Gary Allen Hinman, a music teacher and acquaintance of the Manson family. The family attempted to convince him to join the family since they assumed he was rich. They tortured the man, keeping him hostage for two days before Manson entered the scene with a sword. He cut through Hinman's ear and ordered the family to finish the job. Hinman was stabbed to death, and the family took the time to write Political Piggy and the Black Panther sign in his own blood to frame the Black Panthers and hopefully start the race war that they made up. Next comes arguably the most famous of the Manson family murders, the murder of Sharon Tate. Of course, Sharon Tate was not the only person murdered that day, but seeing as though she was a rising star in Hollywood, who was married to powerful producer Roman Polinsky and was eight and a half months pregnant, she became a symbol of innocence in the Manson family cases. Members of the Manson family entered Tate's home and murdered her along with her guests. Those guests were Tate's ex-boyfriend, J.C. Sebring, friend and copy heiress, Abigail Folger, as well as her boyfriend, Wojtek Rykowski, and Stephen Parent, a 19-year-old who was just visiting the home's caretaker and was killed in the driveway. Everyone in the house was brutally murdered, and the word pig was written on the door in Tate's blood, almost as an afterthought. They almost forgot to consider what they were initially doing this for, Mm -hmm. as awful as it may be. Mm -hmm. They got really caught up in these killings and almost didn't even do what they thought they were supposed to be doing. You know, it's so awful. (sighs) I'm almost done with this, I promise. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The final murders attributed to Helter Skelter were the murders of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. Manson actually accompanied the family members to make sure everything was done correctly. The two were brutally tortured and stabbed to death. The word war was carved into Leno's stomach. They were stabbed several times post-mortem. Just like the other murders, the family used the victim's blood to write death to pigs, rise, and the incorrectly spelled helter-skelter. Rachel will be talking about the trial shortly, but Mm -hmm. for now, I'll give you some good news. The miserable Charles Manson finally died in prison on November 19th, 2017, did the gastrointestinal bleeding. Yay! (laughs) Yay! Awesome! He's finally dead, and he suffered. Oh, just also during prison, um, I think in the 80s, somebody lit him on fire, which was pretty cool. Oh, gotta love it. <laughs> yeah. Gotta love that. Good job, guys. <laughs> Manson and his horrid idea of Helter Skelter were finally dead. When asked about his feelings on Charles Manson's interpretation of Helter Skelter, Ringo Starr had this to say. <laughs> it was upsetting. I mean, I know Roman Polinsky and Sharon Tate, and God, it was a rough time. And it stopped everyone in their tracks because suddenly all this violence came out in the midst of all this love and peace and psychedelia. It was pretty miserable, actually. And everyone got really insecure. Not just us, not just the rockers, but everyone in L.A. felt, oh, God, it can happen to anybody. Thank God they caught the bugger. Yep. And that is the abridged version (laughs) of 
the Manson family history. Yes. Ugh. <sighs> um, did you ever hear, and I forget which Beatles said it, but some a reporter asked them, is Ringo Starr the best drummer in the world? And the, Be- <laughs> and the Beatles said, Ringo's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was John. It sounds like something John would say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he was like, so Lennon was uh, attributed with saying it, but he wasn't actually the first one to say it. Um, like he stole the joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> it's still a good joke. <laughs> yeah, it is. Still, it's still funny. But like he was, he was pretty talented. So I just think. <laughs> They're just everyone likes shit on Ringo, but about uh, I think that John Lennon deserves to have more shit because he's like a total douchebag, and mm-hmm. um, he <laughs> like whenever he was asked about the Helter Skelter stuff, he was like, "It wasn't even my song. It was, <laughs> you know, it was Paul's song, so I had nothing to do with it." It's like, shut up. That's not the point, John. <laughs> Get over yourself, right? So. <laughs> well, speaking of the trials, um, the defense tried to get John Lennon as like a witness. <laughs> they put him on the list to to explain the song, and the judge was like, "No." <laughs> and again, he wasn't even the one that wrote the song. But okay, sure, let's get fucking John Lennon up there to explain it. And Paul McCartney would come up to explain it and be like, hi, this was about a roller coaster. It had absolutely nothing to do with anything from this. Thank you. Bye. Like, (laughs) it could just be a statement. Like, I mean, you could honestly just fucking listen to the song and be like, yeah, no, this does not sound like (laughs) race revolution. Right. And then the um, jury did listen to the song. It was not played in trial, but during deliberation, they listened to the White Album to see... And spoiler alert, they were convicted of murder, so... (laughs) Oopsies! Didn't mean to get ahead of ourselves there. (laughs) So I guess I'll just jump in. But actually, there are a fuck ton of trials associated with the Manson family. Um, Tex also had his own separate trial for the Tate LaBianca murders because they had a tough time extraditing him from Texas because he had fled there. Um, There were also several other Manson family members who got tried for other crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, Manson was later tried separately for the murders of Gary Hinman, who is the music teacher that you talked about, and then um, Jerome Shorty Shea. He was not a member of the family. Um, Shorty worked at the ranch, so he had worked there before the family got there, and um, he he never liked them. And after everything went down, they were like, I think he's going to talk. And so they murdered him and Charles Manson and others were indicted and charged and convicted for his murder as well. But this, the trial I'm going to talk about is the state of California versus Charles Manson et al., which is the trial of Manson and the three members of the family, Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel for the Tate LaBianca murders. So I'm going to go through a cast of characters that we might hear in the story, um, starting with Charles Manson. (laughs) (laughs) And we might hear about him. Yeah. So Charles Manson is the elitist butt goblin, misogynistic, racist, child molesting asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then there's Sadie, 
So Sexy Sadie, whom you mentioned, her real name was Susan Atkins. At the time of the trial, she was 21 years old. Oh, my God. So also, let's talk like timeline too. A lot of – because Manson was released from jail, I want to say 65 or 66, like somewhere around there. And then this stuff happened like in in the summer of 69. So – Mm-hmm. He built his family. He got all of these these really young women involved really quickly. And yeah. um, it was kind of a fast thing. But also, so if we think Sadie was 21 years old at the time of the trial, you know, she's she was a teenager when she first met him. Yeah. Um, Patricia Krenwinkle, and she actually goes by Katie and also Patty. I don't know. Anyway, she was 22 um, during at the time of the trial, and then Leslie was only nineteen at the time of the trial. So, wow, really yeah. fucking young when this happened. Well, and everybody's going by different names because it's that um, cult behavior where um, the leader will give you a new name, and you have yes. to come up with a new identity. Uh huh. Separate you from uh, from your family. So mm-hmm. Sadie, Katie, and Leslie are the three co-defendants in the trial. So even though they were young women, like I mentioned earlier, they were referred to as the girls. And even though I hate it, I'll probably be calling them the girls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, then we have Vincent Bugliosi, and he was a badass prosecutor for the state Ooh. of California. I like a badass prosecutor. Yeah, he was pretty cool. He He unfortunately passed away at the age of 80. But he did a good job, and he wrote the book Helter Skelter, which is uh, phenomenal. It's just a uh, very well done record of of Manson and the trial. Hmm. Um, then Linda Kasabian, whom you had also mentioned, uh, she was a former member of the Manson family. She did leave. She ended up being a key witness in the trial. She mm-hmm. drove the car on the nights of both the murders, but she didn't participate and she did receive immunity for testifying, and she was 20 years old when she testified. Yeah. I didn't mention all of the things like who did what because I was like, I'm pretty sure that that's going to come into light later on. Um, and I didn't want to necessarily spoil all of it. <laughs> um, I got into the murder part, but yeah, I'm not going to go into detail with it either. There's there's a ton of stuff out there for those of you who are interested in it. It's really sad and it's really really heartbreaking and um, gruesome. But I do understand the impulse to know this information. But I figured that's yeah. that's for like any of the other podcasts out there. Yeah, that's for one that um, doesn't have any kind of humor to it. <laughs> yeah. Which is what we're trying to do. But then we talk about things like the Manson family. So very sorry. <laughs> Dark humor. Yeah. <laughs> Diane Lake is also a former Manson family member. She was known as Snake. She was mm. only 14 years old. When she joined Ugh. the Manson family, when she first had sex with Charles Manson in his magic school bus, she was 14 years old. She was not at all involved in the murders. She didn't even know that they were happening. She did serve as a witness and she did write a book, um, which I read and it's really good. And I forgot the name of mm-hmm. Then we have Irving Kenarek, who is the defense attorney for one Charles Manson. If you don't remember, Charles Manson is the jackalope crotch hound who is on trial for murder. 
Oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> See, really, the only way that we could come up with, like, funny things to say in this episode were just, like, creative ways to insult Charles Manson. <laughs> I'm not even, I'm using an insult generator. Yes. <laughs> oh, you're my hero. Thank you. Let's do it. See, Here we go. You just gotta know whom to steal from. That's the important part about comedy. <laughs> So exactly. Irving Kanarek is uh, Manson's defense attorney, and this guy, I don't want to say douche because that doesn't quite, um, like, capture it, but, like, I would say, like, um, a clown who wore a douche ass hat. Like, that's kind of, like, him, Kanarek. That paints um, a very detailed picture for me. I appreciate that. Okay, good. You're welcome. That was not generated. That that was from myself. <laughs> Yes. I could see the gears turning. <laughs> yes, thank you. I wish I wish you could hear them. <laughs> <laughs> like my eye rolls. Yeah. <laughs> Ronald Hughes was the defense attorney for Leslie Van Houten, and he was called the hippie lawyer. He was a hippie. He was into counterculture. This was actually his first trial, his first case. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Day Shin was the defense attorney for Susan Atkins, or also known as Sadie. And Paul Fitzgerald was the defense attorney for Patricia, for Patricia Krenwinkel. Uh, Richard Nixon was the president of the United States, nicknamed Tricky Dick. Throw that in there. He, do, he does have a, a little cameo in this story. Interesting. <laughs> Other family members. Uh, you mentioned Lynette Frome, known as Squeaky. She became the de facto leader of the non-incarcerated family members, and she was pulling some strings and doing some real shady shit during the times of the trial. Mm-hmm. There's other people that I might bring up, but just I wanted to give you an idea like uh, how to keep this straight. And basically, you just remember that it's the three girls in Manson who are all on trial for this one. So the first thing that Manson did was he made sure that he and his family were – family, in quotation marks – were all tried together. So um, this is from Diane Lake's book, uh, which I forgot the name of, but it'll be in our show notes. Quote, (laughs) because of two court cases called People versus Aranda and Bruton versus United States, and by joining all the accused as co-defendants in a single trial, something that a non-family attorney might have insisted was not in the best interest of his clients, Charlie made sure the girls could not implicate one another or implicate him. This is a little confusing, but... Essentially, what this means with the um, Aranda Burton motion, which is legalese, what it means is that if you are a co-defendant in a case, your testimony can't damage the other co-defendants, and your co-defendant's testimony can't damage you. So this was an added headache for prosecutors in the Manson case because there were four co-defendants. So if one witness had evidence against only one person, they had to be careful not to share anything that would implicate the other defendants. And if there was no way for the prosecutor to get this information without damaging co-defendants, he just couldn't ask the question at all. So this also actually kind of backfired a little bit for the defendants because sometimes by crafting a question or presenting evidence in a way that didn't incriminate other defendants – it put the entire blame on only one person. So what this meant was that it was actually good for Manson, who didn't have much real evidence against him, but it was bad for the girls who had actually done the murdering. Mm-hmm. So they were – the whole basis of this case was about conspiracy. And with the conspiracy, 
you don't have to be there or like actually do the murdering to be charged for the murder. It's like if your actions are um, geared towards this final outcome, then that counts, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, we already know that that he did get, con- Charlie Manson did get convicted. So that's not much of a spoiler alert, but that's the legal basis for it was even though he didn't technically stab anybody, all of his actions led towards that conspiracy. Right. It's like how you can't just hire a hitman and be like, I had nothing to do with it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the one that killed this person. Like, mm, you ordered it. <laughs> right. Oh, you can't do that? Oh, shoot. I got to make a phone call. Hold oh, on. oh, okay. I'll wait. <laughs> okay. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. <laughs> hello, hitman. <laughs> oh, hello. Hitman, is that you? <laughs> hitman, I'd like to cancel my order. <laughs> Oh, thanks, you're Okay, <laughs> great. Yes, thank you. Bye. <laughs> so, does the Aranda Bruton motion make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I, I, it doesn't make sense why, why they would choose to do it, but yeah, it is making sense. That right. it really only made sense for Charles Manson. If and right. anybody who had not been a Manson lawyer would have been like, no, we're we're going to try you, you women, and you all separately, because. So, like, for example, um, Van Houten, I believe, wasn't there for the Tate murders. She was there only for the um, the LaBianca murders and mm-hmm. and really honestly had probably not killed anybody. Um, she had stabbed some – she did stab um, Rose Rosemary. Is it Rosemary? Rosemary. Rosemary, but Rosemary had already been dead. And Yeah, there was a lot of postmortem stabbings in that one. Mm-hmm. So basically, if they hadn't done it all together, she probably would have gotten a lighter sentence. Exactly. But by doing it all together, Manson had a much higher possibility of getting off, not sexually. Probably also sexually, actually, because he got off with power. Yeah. (sighs) God, he sucks. God, he's such a stupid prick Mm. dragon. Ooh. (laughs) So let's talk about how they got caught in the first place. Please do. I did intentionally leave this one out because it was – oh, I'm so glad you get to talk about this. Okay. So the LAPD seriously mishandled practically every part of both investigations, and they hadn't really connected the Tate murders to the LaBianca murders. Even when an 11-year-old boy found the gun that Tex had used to kill the the 18- or 19-year-old child in the – truck 19 year old yeah um steven parent yeah steven parent and a child found the gun and very carefully the dad and the child made sure not to touch it they called the cops and they were like hey there's this gun here the cops come and he touches it and smudges all of the fingerprints like you do when you're a trained (laughs) police officer Mm -hmm. in a highly populated crime ridden area Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm mm-hmm Oh, my gosh. It's like the Illuminati episode <laughs> where all of a sudden, you know, you'd think that the, the, the these people in the police force would know what to do, but they're just they're mishandling everything. Right. So why are they? I don't know. OK, this probably isn't a conspiracy. It's probably just um, negligence and ignorance. Right. I mean, it was the 60s. They And plus, um, police departments weren't talking to each other, something that we actually still run yes. into that issue with. 
There were also things like there was a blood spatter on like a button to push the gate and a fucking cop pushed the button and smeared the the blood spatter like with his own fingerprint. Like lots of things. The LAPD fucked this up. I mean, we could just say uh, that this particular um, precinct and and, and this uh, particular um, group of investigators fucked it up. Yeah. Although the LAPD continued to fuck things up, as we remember with um, lots of lots of cases, there's actually a lot of parallels between this and the O.J. Simpson trial. It's very mm-hmm. strange. Um, so, anyways, uh, we could go on and on. But yeah, we won't because we don't <laughs> want to get like blasted for this. I know. I don't want to get on the LAPD's bad side again. Not again. <laughs> Uh, so the gun was found, wasn't connected to things. It was certainly not connected to the bunch of dirty hippies living in the abandoned movie <laughs> lot down the street. And in fact, those dirty hippies had actually moved to a different location in Death Valley, which is called Barker Ranch. So after the murders, Charles Manson was a little bit crazier than normal. He was agitated. He was more apocalyptic than ever. And he was moving mm-hmm. his family around. He wanted to get them into the desert. So they found a place in Death Valley. In early October, the family was exploring an area in Death Valley National Park. As they were exploring, they found that some big rocks had been moved by a what's called a Michigan loader. That's like a brand name, Earth Moving Machine. Out of frustration, Manson ordered the big truck to be burned. So they covered it with gasoline and lit it on fire. Like you do. Right. Okay, so that was his that was his response. <laughs> this did not go unnoticed <laughs> by what? The government, the state government who owned this machine on this national park and had already been surveilling probably with birds the family <laughs> because they're uh, they were associated with a motorcycle gang and also they were stealing a bunch of cars and shit they had been under surveillance so like yeah and um i don't know if i'm getting ahead here too but i know that tex was um <laughs> it was taken in because he was driving one of the victim's cars like yeah, a fucking sports car too like not and then yeah. and the a weapon was found in the wheel well yeah but <laughs> The black people are too stupid to start the revolution. (laughs) (laughs) So this led to a raid at Barker Ranch for arson and grand theft on October 10th and 12th. Many of the family members were arrested, including Manson and Sadie. So while in jail for this, Sadie couldn't help but brag to her cellmates, Virginia Graham and Veronica Ronnie Howard, about all the murdering she'd done. Yeah! <laughs> they told on her. And so then that put the LAPD on the right path, and then that was like, snap. Oh. And then they knew where to look, and they knew like how to put things together, and then all of this other shit happened with, you know, questioning people at Spawn Ranch, and then texts mm-hmm. and driving. Um, but yeah, no, and, and I remember like the, um, the cellmates were like, they were kind of put in a position because they were like, we know we're not supposed to be doing these things and we know that we could get, you know, in a lot of trouble socially if we do it. But they're like, we just, we have to say something because, oh my God, I'm pretty sure she's telling the truth right. and she's insane. But like, could you imagine just like 
like laying on your stomach and like cuddling up to your pillow and kicking your legs and being like, oh my God, you guys. So guess what I did last weekend. It was, it was insane. Like literally insane. Like I need to be locked up. I know I am, but like <laughs> again, <laughs> like way more locked up than you need to be locked up. Like I need to be yeah. locked or upper. Yeah, like not in a kinky way either. Like get your mind out of the gutter, bitch. <laughs> I'm just talking about murder, not sex. It's just a murder. I <sighs> So after she had done her little slumber party brag, <laughs> I yeah. by December eighth, the five suspects were indicted for murder. Could you imagine being like, oh shit? I'm the reason why everybody else got caught. Yikes! <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if she does blame herself. I I will. I do plan on um, reading more into it because I know that the three women who ended up going to jail did eventually turn against and like disavow Manson. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people, I don't think Lynette Squeaky Frome did, and there were some people like outside of who never went to jail, who still, like, follow him or whatever. There were even some people that after hearing about him and all that stuff, especially young women, would write letters asking if they could be part of the family. Mm-hmm. It's so gross. Ladies, if you're a member of a cult and they require you to hurt other people or yourself, leave the cult. Ladies, men ain't shit. <laughs> Don't listen to a single goddamn thing they have to say. Especially if they're telling you something about sex. They don't know what they're talking about. Generally They not. contradict yeah, themselves true. all the time. <laughs> you got your shit together. You don't need him. Babe, go find another girl that is like your bestie and then have fun. Get your life back together. <laughs> and like Cher said, men are like dessert. <laughs> they're nice, but they're not necessary. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to skip ahead past, like, all the grand jury stuff, and we're just going to get to the pretrial. So even before the proper trial began, Manson and the girls were treating it like a Hollywood spectacle. Of course they were. Yes. At pretrial, Manson declared that since the court didn't respect him, he had no respect for the court, and he turned his chair away from the judge like a kindergartner. No offense to kindergartners. Oh, poor little kindergartners. So the next day... The girls stood and turned their backs to the judge, too. We've told everyone what this is going to be like. Yeah. And this also showed us that they were still fully in Manson's thrall, which did not end throughout the entire trial. Correct. Manson also kept asking to represent himself, and the judge kept being like, (laughs) nah, man, you can't read too good. So (laughs) during jury selection, Manson tried again to, like, weasel his way in there, saying he just wanted to ask potential jurors, quote, a few simple childlike questions that are real to me in my reality. But the judge said no. Now, it does kind of make me wonder what he would have asked, though. I know. I'm a little bit curious about it. Yeah. But I do have to say uh, right here, too, um, that's definitely a trend in narcissists, again, with uh, men that think they shit and they ain't shit, um, (laughs) is that they always want to represent themselves in court because they think that just because technically they probably could, you know, based on the law, they think they know more than people that went to law school Mm -hmm. and do this all the time and that they are more qualified and the only people that could tell their story in, in that way. So it's 
kind of fun uh, seeing that uh, blow up in their faces every time. But <laughs> right, well, so famously, Ted Bundy represented himself. That's, yeah, that's somebody I was thinking of. But he did a fairly good job. But he also studied law before that. I mean, a little bit, but he also didn't do that great of a job because um, it was mostly just spectacle. And That's it, true. And it didn't really have that much to do with what he knew about the law. Like when he proposed um, to that woman in the middle of trial, right. like all of that stuff, like it was all just for show. It had nothing to do with intelligence or being a capable lawyer. It was right. just being a showman. But what it also did was it let him use the library, which let him escape. <laughs> so. I know. And I'm like, okay, you got us there. That was kind of smart, but fuck you. I'm not giving you that much credit. Same thing with Manson. No, you no know, credit. all of the spectacle that he was doing, Ugh. you know, it definitely got him a lot of attention. But I don't give him any credit for anything. And he is, um, he's a creepy turd hound. <laughs> he is. <laughs> I love it. I love this generator. I it's want really it. good. It's um, robytherobot.com insult generator. I'll put it in our show Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Also, during voir dire, voir dire means tell the truth. And it's when the jury, you just ask them a bunch of things to make sure that they're going to tell the truth. Um, so they're interviewed. Manson would just stare at one person and mostly the judge or the prosecutor for literally hours at a time. And apparently the judge, quote, totally ignored him. (laughs) Good. Yeah. Um, The girls smiled and giggled through the jury selection, but were relatively non-disruptive. And then the trial, July 24th, the day of the opening statements, Manson showed up with an X carved into his forehead. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Outside, a bunch of his family members had been camping out, and that day they passed out a typewritten statement that was apparently from Manson, and it read, I have X'd myself from your world. You have created the monster. Blah, 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 blah. A bunch of other stupid fucking bullshit. <laughs> I'm surprised. He never said any bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Over the weekend, the girls marked their own foreheads with the same X. And then the followers not in the court also did the same. And then that became um, like a symbol for the family. And then also for like you had mentioned, people coming up and wanting to join. They were already yes. doing this at this point. So new recruits, that would be their way was to carve X's into their foreheads. Mm-hmm. So – with the girls' exes still raw on their foreheads, Linda Kasabian took the stand on July 27th. Um, she was probably like, oh, my God, they're crazier than I thought when she saw, like, those bloody exes. <laughs> so Kasabian was on the stand for 18 days. Uh, this Ugh. is longer than most trials. Yeah. So usually a witness is on the stand for one, maybe two days. So 18, two days. 18, two days. 18 days. A big part of this is because of Manson's asshat of a lawyer, Kanarik. He objected so frequently and caused so many interruptions that he was actually jailed for contempt of court. So he had to spend the weekend in jail. Like my cousin Vinny. I haven't seen it. We've talked about uh, it, though, before. Uh, yeah, I think because um, Rudy Giuliani mentioned it and acted <laughs> like that was a, a good thing to say as a lawyer, <laughs> is to bring up My Cousin Vinny. It's one of my dad's favorite movies, but, like, you know, he would show up in, like, crazy suits and stuff like that, and he'd be held in contempt of court and have to go to jail, like, every night. 
<laughs> there was another lawyer who was held in contempt for being late. And I was like, shit. Oh, no. And then his choice was to either find, be fined $50 or spend the night in jail. And he's like, I don't have $50. <laughs> so, oh. so he had to stay the night in jail. That sounds like me as a lawyer. I get, I'd be late and be like, I'm so sorry. And then I'm like, I don't have $50. <laughs> I spent it all on an appendectomy. <laughs> I spent it all on LaCroix. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I do drink a lot of LaCroix. Sponsor us. Okay. So, um, yeah. I do have a lot of appendectomies. <laughs> Sponsor us. <laughs> Sponsor me. Please. Let me, let me pay my medical bills. <laughs> We're talking about lighthearted things like murder. Don't bring up your medical bills and bring down the whole vibe. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to bring up the healthcare system and how that works. <laughs> I'm having meltdowns constantly. Let's talk about Fine. murder instead. Um, so Bugliosi, who is the prosecutor, he gave an example of Kanarek objecting to his first question, his very first question um, to Kasabian that was basically like, do you understand what you're witnessing or what you're testifying on? Uh, Kanarek is like, I object. He moves for a mistrial, and then he argued for a full 10 minutes before Bugliosi could ask a second question. <sighs> yes, this, this is the character that we're dealing with. Yeah, he sounds like a lovely individual <laughs> who also um, paid a lot of attention during law school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was kind of... Um, notorious i guess for this even beyond this but this took the cake oh my god first question first question so that's why she wrote out there for 18 days was because of that bullshit and also during this time while kasabian was testifying manson did the whole i'm gonna slice your throat gesture like he drew his finger along <laughs> his throat and mm -hmm. she didn't even blink she just like she saw it and she's like, whatever. And she just kept going. She was honestly a badass. And she – Good for her. Yeah. Even though – and I know that she drove. But for the first one, she did not know that that's what was happening when she drove there. She Well, yeah. And something I didn't quite mention before was that um, on the earlier ones uh, – or the, the Tate one, mm -hmm. at least um, – they were just told, do whatever Tex says. Mm -hmm. That's what Manson told them. So they didn't know what they were doing. It just They just said, do whatever Tex says. So mm -hmm. she drove because that's what Tex said, and she was there. But they were not necessarily made aware of that. So the fact that the other girls, quote-unquote girls, went in there and were killing because that's what Tex said to do, you know... That's just what they did. But mm -hmm. it was kind of clear that Linda was uncomfortable with it, mm -hmm. to say the least. Yeah. Um, which I'm pretty sure that's why she also just cho chose to drove the next drive the next time as well. Mm -hmm. Unless I'm making that. No, that's you know. that sounds accurate. And just also remembering, too, that a lot of these – like, it was the next day. So it was two days. So one that's a lot to yeah. process – um, and you don't have anywhere to go. And then also you're fucking terrified. Well, also these people that's supposed to be your family, they just randomly killed 
people in cold blood. Mm -hmm. And then what, what are you supposed to do next? Say, no, I'm not okay with that. You know that you're putting yourself at risk by saying that. And you know that there's a possibility that you're also going to die. Where are you supposed to go if this is where you ran to? Exactly. You got nowhere else. So, I mean, again, it's hard. It's really hard to talk about, um, the cult members in this way, um, especially with this cult in particular, um, because there was actual murder involved. And so you don't quite know where to draw the line. Mm-hmm. These people, they did horrible, horrible things. And in some cases, it's because it was what they felt was their only option. So once again, kind of keep that in mind. We're not defending anybody. We're just addressing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's if one thing that I'm um, reading about this really like hit home for me, which I already knew, but like is, is it's not cut and dry. There's so, it's right. so complex. And I went through that transformation of just hating everybody in it to being like, oh, okay, <laughs> there was a lot of shit going on. <sighs> Definitely. So, um, so there's that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So also while Kasabian was on the stand, when she got to the part where she was talking about the murder of Stephen Parent, who was the the teenager in the car, um, she just lost it and she was sobbing and like could barely get her words out. And then yeah. Sadie started giggling and Leslie was drawing and Kate or um, Patty or Katie, she her nickname was Katie, which is weird, was just yeah. like looking bored. So it was this huge contrast between the woman who had left the family and then the the three who are still super duper in it. Yeah. And then there's one point too that I want to mention at this where Manson looks at her and he just like has this outburst and he says, you've already lied three times. And so she meets his eyes and she says, quote, oh, no, Charlie, I've spoken the truth and you know it. <laughs> and so her testimony, she was the key witness, and they started with her. Um, mm-hmm. But this trial lasted 220 days, which is oh. the at the time was the longest trial in history. Now it has since been surpassed by, you guessed it, the O.J. Simpson trial. But wow. the jury and the jury was sequestered the whole time. Oh, my gosh. That's, like, my biggest fear is, like, getting called for jury duty, getting picked, and then being like, oh, cool, it's a murder case. How exciting. And then having to hear all these really horrible things in court all the time and not be able to go anywhere or tell anybody or, like, talk to my therapist about it. I know. (laughs) Or even just, like, decompress after a long day. I know. And they couldn't, um, you know, it's the 60s, so they didn't have cell phones or whatever. So that was, they weren't used to that. So it's not like they had that taken away. But they couldn't watch. I think even nowadays they won't even let you have a cell phone. Right. But so back then they didn't know what they were missing, though. Whereas today without our cell phones, we'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know. That's true. But also I would still be like, oh, my God, I'm, I've been hearing about these brutal murders all day and these crazy people. And mm-hmm. I'm starting to freak out about the state of the, pe- of the world. And <sighs> Right. And then for the newspapers, because they didn't want them to, you know, have um, be mm-hmm. colored by outside reporting – any news about the case had to be cut, physically cut out of the newspaper. And then the bailiff or whoever was uh, taking care of the sequestered people would give them the cutout newspapers. 
And actually, a little anecdote about this is later on, when they stopped making such splashy headlines, that the people would still cut things out of the front page just to make it seem like they were still in the news, so they wouldn't like lose heart. (laughs) Oh, that's kind of (laughs) sad. Okay, but speaking of newspapers, okay. So after that, she testified in July, so eighteen days into July thirtieth. So then over the weekend, um, President Nixon uh, fucked some shit up. (laughs) Oh, Tricky, you mean Tricky Dick fucked shit up? Tricky Dick fucked shit up. (laughs) Something to bear in mind is that Kanarek, presumably at the urging of Manson, was constantly moving for a mistrial. So mistrials can be caused from a lot of situations, most of them having to do with the jury. And this is why juries are sequestered. It's Mm. to keep them from doing or learning about anything that could sway their opinion outside of what is presented in the trial. So just remember that. This is that he keeps moving for a mistrial. Okay. So when President Nixon said something off the cuff and it was reported in all the newspapers, it was a big deal. What he said was. (laughs) What he said. (laughs) He was criticizing the press. And Nixon said that the press tends to, quote, Glorify and to make heroes out of those who engage in criminal activities. <laughs> I don't know. I even practiced my Nixon impression, and I was <laughs> like, I don't actually know how he talks. I know. We just all know the <laughs> yeah. thing that, that everybody <laughs> makes fun of. Like, <laughs> But there, this recording is available out there, but it's really kind of bad quality, so I couldn't hear him. And he was younger, so he wasn't quite like that, but that's, that's oh. Nixon. Dang. Well, you did amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So he was basically just, like, gossiping, was like, this bitch thinks she the shit, but she ain't. Fuck Manson. (laughs) Right. So he he said that – and that they – the press glorifies and makes heroes out of criminals. And then he Mm -hmm. used Manson as an example of this. And he said, here is a man who is guilty, directly or indirectly, of eight murders without reason. And then later went on to say that as far as the coverage was concerned – Manson appeared to be rather a glamorous figure. Mm. So he's already like he's already he's already finding him guilty. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which, as you know, we're not supposed to do in the United States. Our whole justice system mm-hmm. is founded on a principle of innocent until proven guilty. Oh, is it? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> for for it white people. Seem to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's a that is the main reason why it's incredibly egregious. But also we can add this to Manson's long list of crimes: the fact that he forced me to hear something that Richard Nixon said that I agree with. Because no, no. The, the fucking press and the way that they glorify criminals. I think this is something especially to take note with the uptick in our um as like a society, we do have this fascination with true crime, which I get, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to bash that fascination. But we've also got to be really careful about how we glorify criminals, especially a douchebag like fucking Charles Manson. Right. Like, it's one thing to be interested in true crime for morbid curiosity or just, you know, to kind of feel a sense of security. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can get away with it. Or we know who serial killers, like what a serial killer could be so the profiles and everything so you feel a little bit stronger having that knowledge in your in your pocket but once you cross to any kind of admiration you know whether or not it's like this person has 
evaded the police for so long. So, oh, how cool is that? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, they did something like creative almost with their murders or uh, like a Ted Bundy figure because he was so like charismatic. That's that's where you cross the line. And, you know, unfortunately, with true crime, you have to remember that this is involving real people. Right. So um, I think it's way more fun to just come up with creative insults for these douche nuggets. Nice. I do, too, and I Thank forgot you. to open up my um, my thing. So you're going to have to – or do you have the generator up, or are you just going to generate from your own mind? Yeah, I'll just generate from my own mind. <laughs> okay. I'm on Adderall. I can do it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, also Nixon, who he – as you had pointed out, said that he was guilty – Nixon is the fucking president of the United States. Yeah, and States. for some reason, <laughs> Americans are really into what presidents say. Right. <laughs> and he said this at a press conference where, I mean, he was recorded, and this time he couldn't erase any parts of the tape. So, oh, yeah, somebody else had the recording. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then the last thing, too, that this did was Charles Manson – then knew that he was being talked about by the president of the United States. And so his Jesus Christ complex just grew. So he was officially then king and not just king of anal leakage, how I see him, but he was like (laughs) the king of whatever, of whatever he thinks, thought he was. So Uh in, uh, he responded through the hippie lawyer, Ronald Hughes, who was representing Leslie Van Houten, but was, you know, part of the team. And he was the one who was mm-hmm. a hippie. And Ronald Hughes released the following statement to the press. Here is a man who is accused of murdering hundreds of thousands in Vietnam, who is accusing me of being guilty of eight murders. Oh. So that's what Manson said through Ronald Hughes. So I say, why not both, you motherfuckers? You both suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did you know that two people can suck at the same time? <laughs> Didn't you learn that in college? Phrasing. <laughs> Phrasing is important. That's my PSA for today. <laughs> I also want to point out that Manson didn't give a shit about Vietnam. He was just capitalizing on the anti-war sentiment and that huge trial of the Chicago 7 that was also going on at around that time, just like he capitalized on the idea of free love to form his cult. Yeah. Like, he's an absolute um, dick thorn, but (laughs) – oh, because I was thinking thinking about Tricky Dick Nixon, so I said dick. Okay, anyways. um, But he did know how to capitalize off the – the genuine, like, goodwill of others. He knew how to twist that in a terrible, mm-hmm. horrible way. He's manipulative. He's manipulative. And that's not admirable. No. <laughs> Fuck this guy. Unless it's, like, your your dog or your cat doing it, then it's pretty cute. I love a manipulative puppy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, yeah. when it's when it's, like, oh you need to give me an extra treat Uh or like, oh, I need to come sit on the bed with you. (laughs) Oh, you got me, puppy. (laughs) I used to have a neighbor who had a daughter who was like a toddler and occasionally I or my ex-husband would go over and watch her for just like a little bit. And so he was telling – my ex-husband was telling me how he went over to watch her and she was like – hey, will you get me a Popsicle? And he's like, I don't think that you're allowed to have a Popsicle. And she goes, if you get me a Popsicle, I'll share it with you. <laughs> oh, I have been manipulated manipulated by so many children. I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm weak. 
Yeah, I know. Me Unless it too. comes to taking down lizard people, in which case I'm a badass. Yeah. I'll fight all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Manipulation is good in the youth or in animals, not in full-grown men or full-grown mm-hmm. women either. So the – or full-grown envies, no, no matter what. Not if you're grown – Full-grown people. Yeah. So the whole tricky dick situation put everyone involved in the trial into a tizzy because – after all the work that they'd put in pre-trial with the jury selection, with voir dire, with sequestration, the jury learning about this could be disastrous. So everyone scrambled <sighs> to figure out what to do. So they put a bunch of rules in place. They shut off the televisions in the rec room. They made plans for visitations. Uh, all of these rules, everything were put into place and like, okay, this is great. Nobody heard about it. We're fine. The next day, the shenanigans continued. For one, Canarek oh. tried to charge Nixon with conspiracy. What? But that was obviously what? outside of the scope of the <laughs> trial. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> They're trying to bring in the Beatles and Nixon. <laughs> yep. The mamas and the papas. Like, this is, like, I'm really good at being a lawyer. I'm so good at lawyering. He's <laughs> terrible. And then Day Shin, who was the doofus representing Sadie Atkins, <sighs> Broke the rules and brought in a newspaper. What he Son thought bitch. was the sports section only. Mm. It was not just the sports sports section. And Manson grabbed it. And just after the noon recess, he whipped out the front page of the Los Angeles Times, whose headline hugely screamed, Manson guilty Nixon declares, and held it up to the jury. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what kind of kangaroo court bullshit is this? <laughs> uh, well, it caused an uproar. A sheriff's deputy oh, did snatched, it? yeah, shockingly, snatched the paper <laughs> from Manson. But the court had to do several more hours of voir dire to ascertain whether or not any jurors would be affected by it. And most of them had seen part or all of the headline. But they all swore under oath that they'd be able to remain impartial. And that was good enough for Judge Older because, I mean... <laughs> He's probably already really, really frustrated, even though it's only He's a probably like, in. this guy really is guilty. <laughs> I mean, I know. can't we just move on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to continue the theatrics, the next day, the girls pulled a related stunt when, in perfect unison, like a bunch of animated hyenas singing about being prepared, they stood Ooh. up and said, Your Honor, the president said we are guilty, so why go on trial? They would continue to do this whole chant in unison bit throughout the whole trial, often repeating something Manson said. It's creepy. It's so fucking creepy. I mean, it's again, it's one of those things where it's like, this is not how court is. (laughs) It's usually way more boring. And they're just like, like using their 15 minutes of fame the best that they can. And it's mm-hmm. it's insane. And again, they killed people. People yeah. are dead. And they're just like, oh, now it's my time to shine. Like, fuck off. I know. Ugh. Like how I always brag about being a theater major, but I don't kill anybody and then do my theater stuff. Right. You separate. I can do my theater stuff. Killing. Like, yeah. Yeah. Theater. Totally different. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, a lot of people speculated that if the four were convicted, it wouldn't hold up an appeal because of this whole situation. That's right. Uh, But interestingly enough, it turns out that that's not the case because a defendant can't benefit from his own wrongdoing. Oh. 
It's called Invited Error, which I feel describes a lot of my college years. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, I don't like that phrase. (laughs) Invited Error. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I like in this context because, yeah, you dummy, (laughs) you can't just just, go in and and do this. (laughs) Right. So while something invited error will not help you overturn a conviction, so that Mm -hmm. wouldn't work. But it could possibly prevent a conviction still because it could foster reasonable doubt um, within the jury and create a hung jury. Mm -hmm. So that's where that it's uh, not as bad as maybe some people thought it could be, but still fucking. Yeah. Okay. So then more witnesses were called over the course of several weeks. While the unincarcerated family members and the ones not on trial kept vigil outside the Hall of Justice, and they continued harassing all of the witnesses who would come in. However, the the family did more than harass one witness, Barbara Hoyt. So let me tell you about Babs. Let's hear it. Justice for Babs. (laughs) (laughs) Barbara Hoyt had lived with the family on Spawn Ranch and had been called to testify. At this point, she didn't know where she stood or how she wanted to handle it because she was still brainwashed. She still thought of herself as part of the family, but she was also like, murder is bad. And I do know that too. Uh-huh. So what to do? What a dilemma. It is a dilemma. So to clear her head, Squeaky suggested a trip to Honolulu with another family member named Ruth Ann. So mm-hmm. Ruth Ann and Barbara Hoyt whip off to Honolulu. While they were there, Ruth Ann uh, somehow like put 10 doses of LSD into a hamburger and made sure that Barbara ate it all and then flew home without Barbara. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the intention was probably to kill her. <laughs> but LSD isn't lethal in that way, which is something kind of new. I didn't know this, but nobody's died from an overdose of LSD. It doesn't work that way. That would make sense. I mean, it, just because it's a hallucinogen, but also it's not good for you. <laughs> no, I mean, because people do die while they're on LSD yeah. because they think they can do things like fly or mm-hmm. start a race war with a song about a roller coaster. I mean, yeah, that's a natural step. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I just love that it was in a hamburger. Like, I... <laughs> Like you're just eating this burger in Hawaii of all places, like in the yeah in the like, Honolulu airport. Oh, that's right. The, yeah, in the airport. So it didn't even really get to enjoy Hawaii, right? Was this? Before? It was after the trip. Oh, after the trip. Yeah. Okay. Well, so like you yeah. had a good time in Hawaii, and you're like, all right, uh-huh. airport food, burger, and then she just like casually slips in all this LSD, and then <laughs> uh-huh. like now you're like you just have a belly full of beef, and now you're tripping. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like ugh. uh so with her belly full of beef Barbara wandered off um after she was ditched at the hospital she she wandered off wait, into traffic at the hospital or I'm sorry at the airport okay I was like wait that was actually nice <laughs> to, to drop her <laughs> off at a hospital first she did end up at the hospital but after she was found wandering in traffic oh gosh ditched at the airport yeah so she did almost die. So they took her to the hospital went, and she went through some rehab and returned to California. And shocker, it turns out that trying to kill off a reluctant witness 
might actually make her very enthusiastic about testifying against you, which she was and did. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Glad she came around. Sorry she had to go that way. (laughs) Right? (laughs) To get there. (laughs) Uh, A side note, Mm -hmm. just because this is kind of chronological, towards the end of the trial, Spawn Ranch burned down in the midst of a California wildfire. And the family saw this as proof as the approaching judgment day. <laughs> it's just such, I just can't. I can't with them. I, yeah. I mean, that's. <laughs> I don't even know what else to say. You just. You can't even say a full sentence. Just, I can't. I can't. I can't. <laughs> I know. So trial goes on. Um, and then in his book, remember I was reading Helter Skelter by Bugliosi, who is the uh, prosecutor. Mm-hmm. He notes that the more damaging testimony was, the more disruptive Manson became, which makes sense. Oh, so throwing a tantrum and gaslighting people and trying to, you know, distract. Yes, that's all his, of that stuff. That's, yeah, when, when things get bad. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. But whenever no, his lawyer is like, you know, defending him, he's he's behaved. <laughs> exactly. Or mm-hmm. like helping out with that. Mm-hmm. So on October 5th, the testimony of Detective Paul Whiteley must have been extremely damaging because Manson really caused a spectacle. Mm. He asked to cross-examine the witness himself. And the judge, <laughs> not being a lunatic, said no. And the following exchange is from court records. And then the description in between is from Bugliosi. Judge Older, if you don't stop, I will have to have you removed. Manson, I will have you removed if you don't stop. I have a little system of my own. Not until Manson made that very startling admission did I realize that this time he wasn't play acting, but deadly serious. Judge Older, call your next witness. Bugliosi, Sergeant Gutierrez, Manson, do you think I'm kidding? It happened in less time than it takes to describe it. With a pencil clutched in his right hand, Manson suddenly leaped over the council table in the direction of Judge Older. He landed just a few feet from the bench, falling on one knee. As he was struggling to his feet, Bailiff Bill Murray, no relation, leapt (laughs) to, landing on Manson's back. Two other deputies quickly joined in, and after a brief struggle, Manson's arms were pinned. As he was being propelled to the lockup, Manson screamed at Older, In the name of Christian justice, (laughs) someone should cut your head off. Adding to the bedlam, Atkins, Krenwinkle, and Van Houten stood and began chanting something in Latin. Older, much less disturbed than I would have expected, gave them not one but several chances to stop, then ordered them removed also. According to the bailiffs, Manson continued to fight even after he had been taken into the lockup, and it took four men to put cuffs on him. Get over yourselves. <laughs> they can't. Like, just stop. I mean, again, how do you think that that's helping your case? Like, you just tried to kill a judge. You threatened the judge's life, and you're on trial for conspiracy to commit murder. Right? <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> oh, God. And all this time, he's still maintaining his innocence. I mean, for that, because he confesses to other things. He's just such a weird fucking fucker. Mm. A little goblin. Fucking fucker goblin, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So after that, all four defense attorneys made a motion for a mistrial. So that's what he's trying to do. 
Because if the judge feels threatened, then he can't he can no longer be um a, you know impartial neutral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, it just feels like more albeit circumstantial evidence that he's guilty. Like now we have to go through all of this again with uh, new things Another. for him to make more outbursts. Like if if that's how that works one time, what's to stop him from doing it every time? Exactly. And I think what they were hoping, because they wanted the trial to go outside of Los Angeles. They didn't want to be there anymore because they felt that they couldn't get an impartial jury there. So that's mm-hmm. that's why they wanted to start from the beginning, just mistrial. Like, he started calling for a mistrial day one. Of course. Um, because when you're totally guilty and you're <laughs> uh, pleading innocent, like, or pleading mm-hmm. not guilty, then... Mm-hmm. Um, you only want a mistrial. <laughs> right. <laughs> you want more time. You want to see what the defense has and then try and find a, like, dumb way around it. <laughs> what the prosecution has. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah. So even though Paul Fitzgerald, who's the defense attorney for Katie Krenwinkel, Patricia Krenwinkel, Patty Krenwinkel, she goes by all those names. Mm-hmm. So even though he told the press that among the 30 witnesses he intended to call, he intended to call were Mama Cass and John Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas and John Lennon from the Beatles, like we discussed. Mm-hmm. The defense actually added to the spectacle of the trial by resting without calling a single witness. <laughs> so what I mean, like, yeah. What else? It's like it's like the equivalent of just like standing up, like making this whole thing about standing up, walking to the center, <laughs> commanding the attention of the room, just just with your your essence and your aura and your eyes, and then just gesturing to Manson, <laughs> and then silently walking away. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> well, so I couldn't find any definitive reasons as to why they specifically declined to call any witnesses. Um, and there's speculation. And so here's, which is actually why I ended up reading Helter Skelter because I was like, he's got to have some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the prosecution, Bugliosi, explained that. In a criminal defense trial, the prosecution has a huge job. They have to prove beyond reasonable doubt and to a moral certainty that the defendants did what they were accused of doing. And so the defense, in this case, must have decided that the prosecution just hadn't done it, that there were enough holes in the story, enough disruption and distraction, that they could assume that the prosecution had not been able to show this guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And so they probably thought it was too risky to call any of their own witnesses, um, especially Manson himself, who kept going back and forth about whether he wanted to testify because there are all the theatrics might, you know, shoot them in the foot. Mm-hmm. So the defense rested. But when they did that, the three girls were like went into an uproar and they started shouting about how they wanted to testify. So at this point, the plan was pretty clear that they – wanted to claim responsibility for the murders and prove that Manson had nothing to do with them. (sighs) Mm -hmm. So guess who thought that was a great plan? Oh, was it the fuckball himself? Yes. (laughs) The the toe pit. (laughs) I just like to, like, combine body parts for my insults. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. But do you know who thought that was a shitty plan? 
the girls' defense attorneys. Yeah. So, in fact, Ronald Hughes, who is the hippie attorney representing Leslie, straight up said, quote, I refuse to take part in any proceeding where I am forced to push a client out the window. <laughs> so, <Wait>. Metaphorically or literally? <laughs> probably both. Okay. I'm glad that that cleared things up for me. Yeah. <laughs> So he stood up to Manson in that to that to, to that regard, in that regard, in that mm-hmm. was there a phrase there? Um, Sadie Atkins did end up on the stand, but her attorney Dacian simply refused to question her. <laughs> so okay, then Manson also ended up on the stand, but because of the Aranda Bruton motion I told you about earlier, mm-hmm. they first did testimony without the jury present. So it's like a practice run to make sure nothing he said would incriminate his co-defendants. <sighs> Instead of being questioned, Manson was allowed to make a statement. And it was super long and rambly, a lot of anti-establishment rhetoric that was probably super impressive to unschooled teenagers, but nothing particularly groundbreaking or elegant in and of itself. Wow. I can't believe that. <laughs> believe it. So he also, of course, suggested he was Jesus Christ, but also the beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that he would murder everyone. That he wouldn't? That he would. Oh, that he would. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, totally helpful. So here's a part, again, not groundbreaking, not elegant, but here's something that he said that I'll read to you. Quote, oh if I could get angry at you, I would try to kill every one of you. If that's guilt, I accept it. These children... Everything they done, they done for the love of their brother, referring to the, the girls. If I showed them that I would do anything for my brother, including giving my life for my brother on the battlefield, and then they pick up their banner and they go off and do what they do, that is not my responsibility. I don't tell people what to do. These children were finding themselves. What they did, if they did, whatever they did, is up to them. They will have to explain that to you. So that was something that they were like, don't say that <laughs> in front of the jury. <laughs> well, yeah. So because he's clearly throwing them under the bus. Yeah. They he's don't he's care. incriminating them. Yes. And then when he says everything they've done, they've done for the love of their brother. Mm-hmm. That comes up later because they then tried to argue that Manson didn't have anything to do with it. They did it to get the heat off of Bobby Bolsoleil. Because they wanted oh. – he, he was in jail, if you remember, for the murder of Robert Hinman. Mm-hmm. Is that his name? But he was already in jail for that. So they were going to try to say, like, they were trying to do it. So then, oh, if this murder happened while he was in jail, it couldn't be him. Anyway. Oh my God. <laughs> Manson decided actually not to testify in front of the jury. Okay. So, <laughs> after this, this is the end. They broke for a 10-day recess. Before closing arguments mm-hmm. and deliberation. So remember that Manson was desperately trying to orchestrate this idea that the girls did it on their own mm-hmm. and that they were going to take the fall for him. Mm-hmm. But Ron Hughes, hippie lawyer for Leslie Van Houten, seemed to be acting weird and putting his own client's best interests in front of Manson's. Oh, that's so strange. It's uncalled for. remember too that leslie was only present for the labianca murders and in all likelihood had not actually had a hand in killing them um she did admit to stabbing rosemary but she believed that she'd already been dead which was likely right and then 
Ron Hughes had even told the press that he was pretty confident he could get Leslie acquitted. Mm-hmm. After the 10-day recess, however, Hughes just didn't show up to court. Ooh. <laughs> so who doesn't show up for the biggest murder trial of the century? <laughs> A dead guy. A dead guy oh. wouldn't show up because months later his body was found. Jesus. Uh, no, I don't mean Manson. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. That's who doesn't show up. Yes. It's really hard to be on time to anything when you're dead. Like, um, Almost impossible. So the closing arguments were as disruptive as the trial. Manson threw paper clips. The girls accused the judge of having Hughes murdered. And Sadie physically assaulted the prosecutor twice. Oh, my God. <laughs> Manson even tried to break out of jail during that time. <laughs> uh-huh. It got so bad that the judge no longer allowed any of the defendants back into the court during the remainder of the trial. So while the during closing arguments and deliberation, they couldn't even be in there. They had to listen to it from a loudspeaker outside. Fair. <laughs> so Kanarek, the asshat douche lawyer who is addicted to interruptions – went on so long during his closing that on the fifth day, the jury sent a note to the bailiff requesting medicine. No dose for themselves and a sleeping pill for Kanarek. At the end, the judge had this to say, quote, I have come to the regretful conclusion during the course of the trial that Mr. Kanarek appears to be totally without scruples, ethics, and professional responsibilities so far as the trial of this lawsuit is concerned, and I want the record to clearly reflect that. Shit! Mic drop! (laughs) I know, I hope someone had a list of burn centers prepared. Ooh! (laughs) (laughs) So, the jury deliberated for nine days which is actually pretty short for a trial this long. In the meantime, because of Judgment Day rumors and references by the family, security had been beefed up. Security had a belly full of beef. beef. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't tripping, however. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) So the day of the verdict, the girls came in giggling and whispering, and Manson came in with a wink. When it was time to read the verdicts, all four defendants seemed emotionless except Bugliosi, saw Manson's hands shake. Mm. All four were convicted of conspiracy to commit murder and murder in the first degree. Mm -hmm. So there were more shenanigans during the penalty phase of the trial, but in the interest of time, I will just let you know that the whole point of view of their defense had been to show again that it wasn't Manson's fault. Um, So the three girls were willing to take the fall completely, and so their last desperate attempt during the sentencing phase was to try to pin the mastermind minding on one Linda Kasabian. Oh. So she's the one who's um, – everything basically hinged on her testimony. Mm-hmm. So they said she was the one who masterminded it because masterminded it because she was in love with uh, Beausoleil and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, it didn't work. Oh, <laughs> wow. Oddly enough, I know. Wow. You mean this totally fabricated lie? <laughs> Didn't hold up in court? Can you believe it? I don't Mm -hmm. know. (laughs) Especially after all that they've done to prove their innocence. (laughs) Right? valiant effort. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, they really came across as logical and empathetic. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, not (laughs) at all capable. Or wait, no. It was illogical, 
pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Sorry, I misspoke. Yeah. And not at all capable. (laughs) So uh, clearly not because all four were sentenced to death. However, the death penalty was repealed in California less than two years later. Mm -hmm. So all of their sentences were commuted to life. I'm going to quote again from Bugliosi's book to kind of wrap up the trial bit. It had been the longest murder trial in American history, lasting nine and a half months, the most expensive, costing approximately $1 million, and the most highly publicized, while the jury had been sequestered 225 days longer than any jury before it. The trial transcript alone ran to 209 volumes, 31,716 pages, approximately 8 million words, a mini library. So the O.J. Simpson trial did end up being longer, but um, until like that, before that, it was this one. So as you mentioned, Manson did die in prison in a very fitting way. He bled mm. out of his ass, mm. considering, <laughs> yes, that he'd spent much of his life talking out of it. It only makes sense he'd die from bleeding out of it. Mwah, that was perfect. Beautiful. Chef's yes. kiss. <laughs> no, um, to your, uh, uh, that is. No, I, <laughs> to his asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I wouldn't even know where to start. He's all asshole. But I'm. <laughs> so, although it took about five years, all three women did eventually denounce Manson, mm-hmm. express remorse, and begin journeys of rehabilitation. Susan Atkins died in prison in 2009. Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel remain incarcerated despite several recommendations for parole and being deemed model prisoners. The impact of Manson and the trial cannot be overstated. It became the proverbial nail in the coffin of the counterculture movement. Now all the legitimate protests and earnest attempts at free love were painted with a big bloody brush. This creepy little slob goblin slammed the door on the 1960s like a dickwad. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, that's so beautifully put. Like a dickwad. I was like, genius. <laughs> Just that's exactly what he needed. <laughs> Some oh little punctuation. That, yeah. That's the trial. Wow, good job. Applause Thank to you, you. for Thank that. You. That was a lot to get through. Yeah. I mean, ugh. And that's not even all of it, as you can imagine. Right, yeah, I know. I mean, this uh, this entire thing, uh, this entire episode, we both have lamented that we didn't get the chance to go into as much detail as we wanted. Um, there were a lot of moving parts to it. There were way too many things that were just so out of the ordinary. And... Um, there was just one giant cockroach motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I hate him. I do too. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to go on record saying that I hate Charles Manson. Ditto. Yay! <laughs> Glad we can agree on that. Yay! <sighs> and another thing that we can agree on is that this is all 100% real and 100% fake, fake believe. believe.
Charles Manson was for sure a tone-deaf shit hammer, unlike the band Hanson, whose website you can visit at Hanson.net. Similarly, you could also visit the Fake Believe website, where the hosts might be tone-deaf, but sure as shit aren't shit hammers. Anyways, our website is at fakebeliefpodcast.com. Oh yeah, it would also be super duper lovely if you could rate and review wherever you're listening. 